Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. It says, for God so loved the world, but break that down to yourself and believe it for you. Because God so loved you. Because God so loved me. He gave his son. And whoever would believe in him, would not perish, would not be destroyed, would not be hopeless, would not be rejected and abandoned and cast aside, would not be left laying in the ditch, abused and beaten, but would have everlasting, eternal, glorious life in him, with him, and through him. Father, we thank you for that. God, I pray that our hearts would be so overwhelmed and open to the idea that you love us, God. That you don't tolerate us, that we don't come with a legal contract and force your hand, God, but that you desire us. Father, would you just let that wreck our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, amen. Can you imagine the anticipation in heaven when he sent his spirit to raise Christ from the dead? Think about it. He's dead. He's laying in the ground in the grave, lifeless, not moving. He's given it up. And can you imagine the excitement and the anticipation in heaven as that Spirit of God comes rushing into that physical body and he starts, that heart starts to beat? And all of a sudden the enemy realizes, <laughs> what have I done? And what was once a dance of jubilation turns into absolute terror as the enemy realizes, oh, when he said it's finished... He meant us. And all of a sudden, that man raises up and begins to breathe. And that spirit goes in and comes out and in and out. And life is once again flowing through a man's body. And he starts to make his way down into the depths of Sheol. And he's not coming as a hopeless one with his hands behind his back. He's coming as one who holds the keys. And all of hell quakes, but are powerless to stop Jesus. And he utterly destroys and defeats every power. You realize it says on the cross, he made a display of them, a mockery of them. It was like he stood there and in the face of all of them, as he spread out bleeding and, and bruised and, and his body is just completely destroyed and he's making a mockery of them because as they're doing this, there's nothing that changes him. He doesn't think for himself once. And he takes every bit of our sin. And he says, I'll take this where it belongs so that I can take you where you belong. That's our Christ. That's our Jesus. Oh, God, we're so thankful for who you are and for what you've done for us. Father, let it never become old. Let it never become an Easter story. 
that the man Jesus gave his life and was resurrected so that we could live our, surrender our lives and be resurrected to newness of life in him. Oh, we're going to take up our offering real quick, and then I'm going to jump into the message. Um, so if you have your offering, just hold it in your hand. If you've already given online, just hold your hand like that. And if you don't have anything to give but you wish you did, just hold your hand like that. And that's Because man's looking at the outside, God's looking at the heart. He sees that you have a heart to give. Like, even if you don't have something in this moment, your heart is, man, I wish I had something to give. You have something to give. It's your heart. It's your desire for him, and that's more precious to him than gold or silver. Because he knows if he has your heart, everything else flows from that. That's why the Bible says that above all things, guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. Everything in your life flows from your heart. So if he has your heart, the rest of it will follow. You know, it's like when you're teaching a kid to do a backflip in gymnastics. You teach him, if you throw your head, your body will follow, because where the head goes, the body follows. With, with our life in Christ, it's where the heart is, the body follows. And where your heart is, that the rest of you will come into alignment with it. So just hold it in your hand real quick. As they're passing the baskets, that's fine. And just say, Father, I thank you that I have something to give. And it's all for you. And I pray that you do with it what I never could. In Jesus' name, amen. You know that's the truth about your heart. He does with it what you never could. Think about that. Who could change their own heart? Who, who could actually change who they are? You have a, a stony heart, right? He said, he said, but I'll take their heart from them, and I'll give them a heart of flesh, and I'll write my law upon their heart, and their heart will be to know me. That's a promise of God. You can't do that yourself, but when you give him your heart, he does with it what you never could. It's the same thing with every area of your life. As you surrender it to him, he does with it what you never could and what only he could. That's the way it is following Jesus. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit today just about um, this whole thing of, of being um, born again, a new creation in Christ. Because I, I, I I'm going to preach from a, a, a passage that I, I think I preached from six or seven years ago for the first time. It was, um, and since then we've revisited it a few times, but but it answers so many questions, and it lays out such a beautiful promise that I think it's worth looking at and talking about um, uh, pretty regularly. But when you became born again, the truth of the matter is, is that all things passed away and everything became new. And, and that is true that the spirit that was inside of you, the spirit of this world is now gone, and the spirit of God has come in and taken up residence inside of you. And that changes everything. But, but, like, your physical body didn't change. Like, if you were short before you got born again, you're probably short after you got born again. You know? I, Patty tried to get born again again, like, 15 times, and she still didn't grow. I won't say that second service because she'll be here. She'd square up with me. <laughs> but, but, no, like, it, it, everything changed, but... But there's things that didn't change, like your physical body didn't change, and, and the way that you think wasn't instantly transformed in every area. That's why it says that you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, that the way that you think, the way that you live is continually being changed and transformed, even though the Spirit of God that lives inside of you is perfect and brand new and whole. And so there's this process that you go through where it's like, for some reason, when, when I got born again, I remember instantly... The desire to be high and the addiction that I had to drugs and that kind of stuff was instantly gone, in a moment. I mean, I didn't even pray for it to be gone. Maybe I did, because I said, God, if, if, if this is life, if this is all there is, then either change me or let me die. I don't want to live like this anymore. And I didn't realize that he did let me die and changed me in the process. 
right? That's the whole thing of no man can see God and live, but Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. What does that mean? Both statements have to be true. Remember we talked about this? I remember when I was reading, and I saw that, and it's like the light bulbs went off. It was like, oh my goodness, these two scriptures actually don't oppose each other. They go together, that no man can see God and live, but Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. When we truly see him for who he is, something has to die. Yeah, and so... So instantly that happened, but for some people it doesn't happen. Like, for some people, I don't know why it works that way, but for some people there's still an urge or desire for something old that pops up, and, and there's, like, this process where they have to choose something. And I, I just never want anyone to feel less than if you're in the process of having to choose something. Like, it's not a lesser miracle that you don't desire that anymore and that you're choosing something better. In fact, in some ways, it may require more faith when you have to choose into something over and over again against what your, 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 your body, the, the flesh, is screaming for in that moment. It may require even more faith at times to say no to something and by choice live a different way rather than when it's just radically transformed. You know what I'm talking about? Like, there were some things in your life probably that were radically transformed in a moment when you met Jesus, and then there were other things that you continually had to choose into to in the face of something else, right? And so, and, and that doesn't make you less spiritual. Jesus had to choose the Father over himself when it came to the cross. Like the greatest thing that was ever asked of him. He says, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from before me. But nevertheless, not what I want. What did he want? He wanted to not do that thing that he was being asked to do. He just said it. Father, if there's any way, let this pass, cup, cup pass from before me. But nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, in that moment, he was choosing to follow the Father in spite of the desire that he had to not do that thing. If Jesus did that, it's probably okay for us. But then there were other things. It was like there weren't even a temptation for him. There wasn't even a thought process. There was no like having to struggle to bend his knee to the will of the Father. And and, and it just instantly was these things that like it wasn't a thought. It was like, hey, I'll turn these stones into bread. He doesn't get on his knees and say, God, sweating like drops of blood, you know I want to turn that stone to bread. But if it's not your will, God, don't let me do it. Like it was just, and, and, and our lives are like that for some reason. There's some things that just instantly get changed and instantly everything is, is different and the desire even is gone. But then there's other things that sometimes we have to actually choose into for a while as, as, as we yield ourselves to the leading of the Spirit until what we're doing and choosing becomes who we are. And then it actually, after time and after a while, it starts to become a part of who we are. And now it's no longer something we're having to choose. We just don't even remember the last time that we had to choose into it. It just become who we are. Does that, make, does that make sense? Yeah. So because I've had people ask me, and they say, well, well, if that's true, if I became born again and all things passed away and everything became new and I'm now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, how is it that I can still sin? And, and it's super easy to explain this if we read the scripture, right? So we'll get into that in a second. But that was kind of why I wanted to talk about this stuff. Um, uh, open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 55. Actually, no, first, go to Romans 6, um, Romans chapter 6, verse 16, and then we'll get to Isaiah 55. So you can put your thumb, no one uses paper Bibles anymore. <laughs> Look at, you guys have graduated from even using your iPhones. Most of you guys are looking up at the screen. Like, that thing's not going to follow you around. Get a Bible. Yeah, I promise you. It'd be cool if Stan would follow you around and put scriptures in front of you as you walked, but the truth is he's not going to be there. The Word of God will be. 
Get a Bible. I, look, I love using my phone. I copy and paste things into my notes. It's so easy. I've got my, um, my, my Greek study reference built right in. I can cross-reference everything. But there's also something about having a, a paper Bible, or, uh, like, the word, like your Bible, your sword, your word of God that, that you have held and that God has held you with. Right? Like it's that word that holds you in those times when you don't know what to do. In those times where life comes at you so fast that you don't have time to go and find something, it's what's in you is, is, is found. Like that's why you need to put the word of God inside of you and know his word so that when life comes to you, you're not trying to find the heart of God in a moment. You found the heart of God long before that moment came. And so your response comes from what you've already found rather than trying to find it in the moment. Like, if you have to go find it in the moment, that's go. At least you're choosing that. Like, at least you're not just responding and reacting to what's going on. That's okay if you have to find it in the moment. Cool. But even better is having been with him and found him before that moment comes, so that when the moment comes, you already have the word of God so deeply implanted inside of you that it's an anchor for your soul and it holds you in that moment when everything else is being shaken. That's what the word of God does for you. It's this, this hope that's an anchor for our soul, and, and it, it's, it's him. It's Jesus. Jesus didn't try to go find the will of the Father when he was tempted by the enemy. He just responded by the word of God that was already inside of him. Yes, he was the word, but as a man, the word of God was also inside of him. We have to understand that the, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, it, it says that Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat, but it says God never slumbers. So who was asleep in the bottom of the boat? Jesus in his humanity. He was led by the enemy into the wilderness to be tempted. God cannot be tempted with evil. So who was tempted in the wilderness? Jesus in his humanity. And when he responds to the enemy, he doesn't respond as God. Because if he responds as God, then there's nothing in there that we can follow. He responds as the man Jesus with the, with the written word of God. Think about it. He is the word. When he speaks, it becomes word. He could have spoken. Anything he said in that moment would have become the written word of God. Yet he chooses to do what he's calling us to do, and that's find what has already been spoken in the written word, respond from that place rather than trying to find a word in the moment. Be really careful when everything that happens, you have to try to go find a fresh word when there's already a lot of words that are written that you can already have discovered. I'm not saying, look, don't despise prophetic utterances. I'm not despising prophetic utterance. What I'm saying is if you start to live by a prophetic word being spoken in the moment rather than living by every word that's already come from the mouth of the Father, you can get into trouble really quick because then you're only doing as well as someone's ability to perform or someone's ability to get it right. That's a lot of pressure to put on a person. And if you have somebody who's broken is finding their identity through their gifting, they may find themselves trying to come up with a word in the moment rather than telling you, I don't know, but this is what's written. And we're part of the problem if we're doing that because we're putting the pressure on people to perform. If Jesus didn't do that in that moment, probably a good idea if he said, follow me, if we would know the word of God to wherever the enemy comes from, to us, the word of God is so deeply hidden in our hearts that we don't sin against him. David knew this in the old covenant. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. What did Jesus do when the enemy came to him and tempted him? It was the word that was hidden in his heart that came forth out of his mouth so he didn't sin against the Father. Come on. It's all in there. Like It's all in there. Every bit of it. You read the word and you consume the word and then all of a sudden you're reading here and you see, oh, this is what David was prophesying. You guys notice I'm wearing a black vest today? 
Someone said, are all you own with black shirts? Well, I have a black vest too. I like it. It was a Christmas gift. See, if we don't laugh every now and then, we'll, we'll, we'll start to feel condemned, right? But here's the thing. This word is not for condemnation. It's not to point out who you're not. It's to point out what is available and what he's calling us into. It's never to say, oh, my gosh, I'm so far from where I need to be. It's, oh, my gosh, look who I can become in him. Always. He's always pulling us into who he created us to be, not pointing out where we've fallen short. He already knew you would fall short. That's why he sent his son, and grace comes to cover where you've missed it, but also to empower you into. If grace is only for when you sin, then why was Jesus a man full of grace? Maybe grace is the thing that keeps us from it and empowers us away from it rather than simply the band-aid that comes when we miss it. When you miss it, grace comes and mercy comes and it covers it. And, and, it, and, and he said, I, the Lord their God, will forgive their sins and remember them no more. For, so far as the east is from the west, so far will their transgressions be removed from me. That's all true. But then there's Jesus who said, come and follow me. And he's a man filled with grace. And that grace was never there to fix the sin was always there to keep him walking in what God had called him to and to be who God created him to be. If our version of grace is so heavily bent on one that we don't see the other, we've got a false version of grace and it doesn't look like Jesus. And then we, might, we shouldn't be surprised when our life looks like continually stumbling, continually falling, because that's the only version of grace that we've ever been taught. It's the truth. It's in your Bible. Jesus was full of grace, a man full of grace. Why did he need to be filled with the grace of God? Because he was going to be called to live a perfect, spotless life, and then he told us to follow him. Are you saying you're perfect? No, I'm saying he is, and he told me to follow him. And that's so funny, right? It's like, so you're saying you're perfect? No, I'm saying that he is, and he said, follow me. So maybe he expected the goal of my life to be him. And maybe grace does come when I fall short, like every man does, every man has. But maybe the expectation of my life shouldn't be sin. The exception to my life should be sin. Because if you expect to sin, then you're living by faith in sin. So when you sin, you're actually living by faith. It's just in the wrong thing. So why, if we preach to people that they are sin waiting to happen and that all they're ever going to do is sin, do we ask, even, even like look at them weird or surprised when somebody sins? They're living by faith. It's just they put their faith in the wrong Adam. And they have more faith in the first Adam's sin's ability to deceive them than the second Adam's righteous, uh, obedience to lead them into righteousness. It's in your Bible. It's in mine. Are you at Romans chapter 6 yet? I, look, I have like 17 messages inside of me that are trying to come out, and I'm just trying to funnel them into one. I promise. I'm barely holding on right now. Guys, I've been spending so much time worshiping, I almost felt guilty for it. I literally was like, God, I've got to go spend time with my family. <laughs> but it, I don't, I'm just in a season right now where it's like I can feel as I worship. I, I told the enemy, I told you guys this, I told the enemy, I said, I know you're watching. Watch me worship. Because he wants, an, he wants to dictate your life. He wants what he's doing to be the thing that you live in response to rather than what Jesus has done that you live in response to. He wants to control. He wants to manipulate. He wants to be the reason that you're doing what you're doing and living the way you're living and feeling the way you're feeling. But there's a man, Jesus, who came and destroyed every bit of his power over your life. And the second you take your attention off of that thing and you put it on Jesus, rather than sinking like Peter, you experience the opposite. You come up out of the water. You're on top of it with him. And the storm can rage around you. You notice the storm didn't go away when Peter was walking on the water? 
its effect on him did until he focused on it. Take your focus off of that thing. Put it back on Jesus and start worshiping. And if you have any thought of the enemy, let it be this. You want to watch? Watch me worship. Watch me in the face of what you've tried to do. Worship the one who's greater than you. You're so defeated. It's not even worth my time, and I've wasted more words on you than I ever should have. You just watch me worship. Stay there. I'm going to go be with him. Want to bet that he flees? Because you submit to God, resist the enemy, and he flees. It's not about how hard you resist the enemy. It's how much of their life is submitted to him. Because he can't stand in the presence of God. And when the presence of God comes as you submit to him and you start to worship him. Listen, even when you miss it, even when you've failed, rather than getting in the, what good does condemnation, what has that ever produced in your life? It says it's the kindness of God that changes a man, to, leads a man to repentance, that leads a man to change the way he thinks and to live differently because of the way you think has been changed. That's what repentance is. It's not simply change your mind. Because if you just say, well, it's just change your mind, that leads to something. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. So yes, it changes the way that you think, but that change in thinking leads to a different way of living. And so, so if, 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 what, what good is, is sitting around in condemnation done for a moment when it says that he took our shame? He took that already. He took your shame. He took the condemnation that was due to you. He paid the penalty for that. And I'm not saying treat it as a light thing. This is what I'm saying, though, is that even in those times when, like, you find yourself, like, the other day I found myself getting frustrated, and I, and, 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 I, and I, I was like, man, a little bit later, I was like, I can't believe I got so frustrated so easily. What the heck? And, 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 and I could feel myself starting to go down this thing of, like, what's wrong? Why the heck did I get so frustrated? Oh, man, you feel like you're really growing. And those familiar voices started to come, but in the moment of that, it's like you put your focus on him, and all of a sudden that turns into, rather than a a beating myself up, it's a celebration of the fact that, man, has my heart changed, because there was a time I lived like that, and I didn't even care. I lived in frustration. I lived with a sharp word always on the edge of my tongue. I lived with an action that didn't look like Christ, always available. There was a time where I lived that way and maybe even celebrated it. And now a moment of yielding to frustration causes me to to feel this way. God, you've so changed my heart. You're amazing. This is proof that your spirit is alive inside of me and transforming me into the image of your son because I so easily see things that before I was totally okay with and now all of a sudden grace has come and it's changed me and it's changed the way that I think and I can't even be okay with something that before would have been a good day. That's what it looks like to be transformed from glory to glory is a good day would have been only having that moment. Now that's a bad day. And what's changed? the expectation of my life because I've seen who he is and I've seen what's available if I yield myself to him and not sow into the flesh. I won't reap from the flesh. We'll get into all that. Are you at Romans 6 yet? (laughs) Romans 6, chapter 16 says this, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? He's just saying this, listen, you get to choose. But when you present yourself to obey them, you make yourself their slave. That's the part you don't get to choose. The part you get to choose is who you present yourself to, to obey. And he says, don't you know when you do that, that your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So here's how you can sin after you've become a slave to righteousness, after you've become born again, a new creation, and, and the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, is this way. 
take it back to before you became born again. Before you became born again, it says you were a slave to sin. There was a time in your life where you were a slave to sin, where sin was your master. And when you were acting in response to what was in control of you, it was producing sin. It was an act of rebellion against who you were and who your master was for you to step outside of sin and actually do the right thing. You were a slave to sin. It was your master. It was your nature. You hadn't become a partaker of the divine nature yet because you're not born again, a new creation in Christ. Come on, this is not, it's not hard. Everybody understands that, that, that before you were born again, while you were a slave to sin, you could do the right thing. But here's the thing. It was an act of willful rebellion against your very nature and your very master for you to do the right thing when you were a slave to sin, but you were capable of it. You just couldn't do it on a consistent basis because you were a slave to that thing. Well, you become born again. You're now a slave to righteousness. You have a new master. There's a new spirit inside of you. The spirit of this world is gone. The spirit of God has come to live inside of you. You're now a slave to righteousness. This is in the Bible. You were freed from sin. That means it no longer was your master. It no longer had authority over you, and it no longer controlled you, and you were made a slave to righteousness. Now you have a new master. But while you have this new master and while you have this new nature, the divine nature that lives inside of you and, the, and a new spirit leading you, you can still, through a willful act of rebellion, step outside of that and do the wrong thing. Just as you were capable, the difference is this, is now that you're born again, it's a willful act of rebellion against your master for you to step outside of his will in sin. So the expectation of our life should be what? Dead to sin, alive to Christ. No longer a slave to this, now a slave to this. The old has passed, the new has come. You put off the old self and you put on Christ. Like It's, it's all in there. And, and so it's, it's not that it's impossible for you as a new creation to do the wrong thing. It's that it's no longer the thing that you are a slave to, and you have to actually willfully rebel. Here's the scary part about that, though, for the person who's born again, is that the more you rebel willfully, the more it starts to become part of your nature and part of who you want because you're sowing into a dead thing. It says that the... the all right, well, we'll get into that. Ready? All right. I'm going to skip ahead here and get into some different notes because I, I want to... I want to get to that part. Um, Galatians uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 7 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It says when we sow to the flesh, the flesh is what? It's the thing that was crucified with Christ. Skip back a chapter, Okay. Let's go with context here. He just told them in Galatians 6, in the later part of his letter, he says, listen, if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap from the Spirit eternal life. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh corruption. Right before that, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, he says this, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what is he saying? He's saying that thing that was once your master has been put to death, it's dead. The only life coming from it is what you're sowing into it. So when you sow into that thing, you reap from that thing. But it's dead. It has no power and authority over you except for what you give it. 
This is the thing we have to understand, is that we're not walking around with these two natures that are fighting with each other. One is dead and laying there and can only come to life when you sow life into it, and then you reap from it what you've sown into it. But it's dead. Hold on, I have another, another verse that backs it up. In Romans chapter 8, verse 10, Paul's saying, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So that means what? That means you don't have two natures warring over each other. It means you have a dead old self, and you have an alive spirit, and both of them would love to control you, but one of them requires your active participation for anything to happen. The other one's alive, leading and guiding you, transforming you, making you more like Jesus. And when you sow into that, well, then you reap from him even more. But he doesn't require anything from you. Listen, you were dead in your sin when the Spirit of God came and made you alive. In other words, he's capable of doing things inside of you apart from you sowing into him. The flesh, however, is dead has been crucified with Christ. And so it's dead, and the only life it's capable of producing is the life that you actually deposit into it, and then you reap back from it. Does that make sense? Because otherwise you're going to think, well, you know, I guess there's these two wolves inside of me, and they're fighting for it. No, they're not fighting. One's alive and leading. The other's dead and hoping that you'll sow into it so that it can produce something in your life that leads to death. So, uh, all right, now that we've skipped way ahead, let's go back now to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, is this making sense? Are you guys, is this, is this helpful to anybody? Because I get this question, okay, good, because I get this question a lot, you know, about, well, what about our flesh? Look, at the Bible, Jesus said, or, um, or Paul said, our battle is not against flesh and blood. That would include your own flesh, too. You're not battling your flesh, you're living to Christ, and in doing so, the flesh has been crucified with its desires. The only way that thing has a voice is if you give it to it. It's like a puppet. It's like a ventriloquist puppet. Think about it. Like it can't speak on its own. It's dead. You have to sew into it for anything to come out of it. So yeah, that thing can still talk, but guess who's moving its hands and giving it voice? You. Me. Because it's dead. You read, read Romans 6 through 9 and look at how many times you're told that, that you are reckons yourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ. The flesh has been crucified with Christ. You're dead to sin, dead to sin, dead to sin, alive to Christ, alive to Christ, freed from sin, slave to righteousness. It's in there over and over and over again. So that, yeah, that, that thing still can have a voice, but guess where it gets its voice from? Us. It's like you got a puppet on your hand. You're telling it what to say. And then looking at everybody and going, see, it's still alive. Yeah, the only reason it's moving its mouth is you've given it the ability. The only reason it has a voice, you gave it yours. Isaiah chapter 55. God sends Isaiah with a message for his people. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Have you ever noticed that God is always wanting to point out like, hey, it's not that hard to figure out. You guys are giving your lives and your time and your devotion to something that doesn't produce life and there's something better that could. So choose that. 
Like, it, it gives you multiple choice, and then he tells you which one's the right answer. I set before you this day a choice, life or death, blessing or curse. Choose life that I may bless you. Like, and he's not mysterious in that way of like, oh, I don't know, I guess we'll never figure out the heart of God. I don't know what he wants from me. No, he tells you pretty clearly what he desires for you. Behold, this day I've given you a choice. It's, a, it's an A or B multiple choice test. And then he says, hey, the answer is A. Now go take the test. And we run off with the test score and we're like, oh, I just wish no one knew what God wanted. I guess, but no one can know the will of God. No, Paul said that I pray that you would know the will of God. Why is he spending his time praying for you to know the will of God if it's something you could never know? That sounds like a waste of time. We're over there with the test going, I I just wish I knew what God's will was. Maybe there's a man of God that could tell me. No, maybe he told you himself. Maybe he said, here's your multiple choice test. Answer A is life. Answer B is death. Answer A is blessing. Answer B is cursing. Choose this one so that I can give you that one. Now go take the test. Oh, God. It's not hard. We've made it much harder than it really is. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made you a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation who does not know you will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Okay, now listen. I remember, I remember, I, I, I remember there's, there's a few messages I remember the first time I saw it and the first time I preached it. And I remember the first time I preached it feeling almost like it was heresy because it went so against everything I had ever heard. But, but I want you to listen closely to what he's saying. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Who's he talking to? He says, let the wicked man abandon his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. For, he says, give them up, abandon them. Has the Lord ever asked you to abandon something without there being an offer of what he wants to give you if you will abandon it attached to it? Never. Ever, ever, ever. He has never just told you, hey, abandon that. He's always said, get rid of this because of, I want to give you this. Put off this. Put on this. It's always get rid of one for exchange for the other because the other is greater than the one. Okay? And, And it's no different here. And it's in context. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. Why does he say and let him return to the Lord? Because the only way that you're living wickedly and unrighteously is if you're living apart from him. So he says, the problem is not actually who you are so much as where you are. You're apart from me. Because you're apart from me, you're living wickedly and unrighteously. So return to me. Come back to me. 
And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will be my word, which will go forth from my mouth. It will not return to me. Oh, yeah, I got them all messed up. Empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. There's so much amazing stuff in here. Uh, we'll get to it. Um, but but I, I had always, and just to be fair, I, I can't say a person or a person's, I just heard this general idea that whenever something happened in life, and typically it was like a tragedy or something like that, but whenever something happened that we didn't understand, I, I didn't notice it really being applied so much to good things. Which is, but mostly whenever something tragic or bad or, or, or horrible or shocking or whatever would happen, people would say, you know, at, when the question of inevitably came up of why would this happen or how did that happen or anything like that, well, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that was how that, that verse was used over and over again. And it was almost like the, quit asking, you'll never, it's almost like they're taking this verse and making it a taunt rather than an invitation. Like God's taunting us, like my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, you'll never figure me out, you'll never know. Rather than an invitation into something of saying, hey, you should abandon that because what I have is way higher. What I have is way greater. It, it, it's an invitation into something, not a ceiling to your ability to know him. And, and, and I told, listen, like, don't hear me say that, like, you have God completely figured out. I totally understand. Like, there is this idea of living with mystery and, and that, that for eternity, it says, we'll be discovering the depths of his love for us. So, so we're never going to have him completely figured out. But he's not saying here, like, anytime you don't understand something, you just say, well, his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts because that's an invitation into those thoughts and ways, not an exclusion from it. And so, so, so he says this, right? And he, so, so the first thing he says is, you know, that, that you, you guys, what, what I have, you can't buy. It's better than what you have. He tells them what he wants for them. Like, he's making himself known, not hiding himself from them. And then he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. And our man thought, and let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him, and our God, he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the hev- as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So we know that for those of us who are in Christ, we have, he became sin that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So it, it, you are no longer an unrighteous man. So when you read in James, this is that, that um, Elijah was a man just like us. And when he prayed, God did these amazing things. For the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. It doesn't mean like, hey guys, Isaiah had something you don't. You're called the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Even that is an invitation into the ability to be able to pray and see God move the way Elijah did. Because he became sin that knew no sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If Elijah's righteousness was enough to move the heavens, how much more is the righteousness of Christ have the ability when we're standing in that to move the heavens as well? See, these things aren't exclusions to us. They're invitations. 
It's because it's the heart of the Father to, to, to tell us, like, you guys have no idea what's been made available to you, and you have no idea who you are now that my spirit lives in you and my righteousness rests upon you. Come on. So, so he wouldn't say, like, hey, to the unrighteous man or to the wicked man. So, but what he might say is, is if there's any wicked or unrighteous way in your life that you see, it's because you don't think like he thinks or you're not living the way he's called you to live. So he would say in that, in that case to us, and I, I'll prove it in a minute here with the New Testament scripture, that if there's a way of thinking in your life that's producing something that you don't see in the life of Jesus, then you should exchange that way of thinking for his way of thinking because his thoughts are way better than your thoughts. And his ways are much higher than your ways. So that's why he said, you'll know my people by their fruit. We will know ourselves also by the fruit. So if we see something in our lives, that's, just look at the fruit of what my life produces. Don't look at what I say on stage. Don't look at what people say about me or any of that stuff. Watch my life. Look at my family. Look at the relationships I have. See who I am. I'm apart from this. this I, I promise you, like, like one of the most amazing things ever is when I see people out in public being who I see them being in private. Or, or, or I'm sorry, in, in the church. Or when, when I would come home and I would sneak into the house and Patty wouldn't know that I was home and I'd hear this sound coming from upstairs and I'd hear her and I'd hear the piano going and all of a sudden I'd realize she's worshiping and I would just like, almost like it's holy ground up there that I don't want to interrupt. So I just kind of peek to the bottom of the stairs, you know, like Joshua with the tent of Moses. I just stand at the bottom of the steps and listen and the sound would come filling down through the hallway and it was her pouring out her heart and worshiping. If all she ever does is worship there to lead people, she will burn out and she'll never be able to sustain it because the recipe for burnout is super simple. It's trying to live like Jesus in public without living like Jesus in private. You can do it for a little while, but you can't maintain it for long. But our fruit, and so we examine our own lives even and just say, like, what is the fruit of what I believe? If it's not leading to what I see is available in Jesus, then maybe I have a way of thinking that is not as good as his way of thinking. So I should run to him and exchange my way of thinking for his way of thinking. If the way that I live isn't producing the fruit of the life of Jesus that I can find so easily in the Bible, maybe I should run to him and exchange my way of life for his way of life. Because as much higher as the heavens are from the earth, so much greater is his way than my way. It's an invitation into an exchange. It's not an exclusion from being able to know him or be like him. Because Jesus said, follow me. Man, I have time. I want to get to this end part because it's, it's pretty amazing. But, but this is... I, I, there's this thing where sometimes we say, like, well, this is just the way God made me. Well, this is just the way I am. It's just the way God made me. It's just my personality. It's just that, are you sure? Because you were born into Adam. You were born into sin. You were born into a way of living that's not Jesus. And you were taught that way. And a lot of the ways that you think and the ways that you act were developed while you were being taught by the first Adam. Are you sure that the way that you are is because that's the way God made you? Or is that the way sin and the fall of Adam made you and now you have to abandon that, become born again and become a new creation in Christ and make sure that everything that you say is the way he made you lines up with something you find in the life of Jesus? A lot of times when we say this is just the way God made me, we're saying this is just something that's too painful for me to deal with and I like actually having this and I'm going to hold on to it and I don't want to get rid of it. Don't look at me with that tone. 
It's the truth. A lot of times we want to make excuses for holding on to something that we can't find in the life of Jesus, but then we blame God for it and say, this is the way he made me. Are you sure? Because Jesus was the perfect representation of what humanity looks like surrendered to the Spirit and led by the Spirit and yielded to the Father. And if you can't find that thing that you're saying is just the way that God made you in Jesus, there's a good chance that Adam made you that way, not the second Adam. And you need to actually abandon that thing because he's got something better. I'm telling you, listen, we are without excuse. I, I know this is challenging, right? And I, I've heard people say like, man, could you, I actually, one guy told me one time, could you not be so challenging all the time? And I'm like, listen, he keeps challenging me. What am I supposed to do? I'm not studying for a message for you guys and letting him challenge me personally. And like, all right, God, that's awesome. You can challenge me. Let me go find something fluffy for them. I just have to pour out my heart of what he's showing me, and if it resonates with you guys, then let it resonate and challenge you. But for crying out loud, it's in there. We might as well just go after this thing and let everything else die. Otherwise, what are we doing? No, really. What are we doing? Life is short. You have a a small, minuscule speck of time before you have eternity to be with him to leave a legacy and to make a mark and to know him and to see as many people come to know him as possible. Why would you waste your time holding on to something that you can't find in the life of Jesus and claim to people that's just how God made you? No, that's probably how Adam made you, which is why you needed to be born again. And once you become born again, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that the way that you thought that produced that thing can die so that the way that he thinks that produced Jesus can actually live. Uh, Listen. I'm not going to get to the end. That's all right. Next week we'll talk about. There is a fluffy part of this. It talks about. All right, we'll go to it real quick. <laughs> I want you guys to leave fluffed. He says this. He says, for you will go out with joy. What's he saying? He says, you come in one way, you leave another way. That should be what it's like when we're, when we're with him. Whether that's alone or when that's with a group of people, we come in one way, but we leave another. He says, you guys, the wicked, the unrighteous, they don't have peace. They don't have joy. He says, come to me. Abandon that stuff. Come to me. What I have is better. And then here's how you know he's talking about an exchange. Because he says, he called them in, wicked and unrighteous, without peace and without joy, with, 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 with spotted garments and all this stuff, without life, with buying things that don't lead to life. This is who he brings in. And he says this. He says, then you will go, for you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Why? Because you came and you surrendered that thing that wasn't his and you received what was. You came one way, you leave another. It's all about being transformed. It's not about just getting with him to feel good. It's about becoming more like him. And that'll feel good. But you can have the feeling without the change. You can't have the change without the feeling. So you go after being changed by him, the feelings will line up. I promise you. You live by feelings, you could end up in a multitude of ways. I I say it all the time, but I'm telling you, it's so true. You've watched a movie that you knew was fake and cried when something sad happened. That's how easily your feelings can lie to you and deceive you. You knew it was fake. No one even tried to tell you. They weren't like, this is a documentary, it really happened. You knew it was fake. You knew Jack and Rose were fictional characters. They weren't even passengers on the Titanic. There was no diamond, and they didn't hang onto a headboard. You knew that before you watched the movie, but as he sank down into the water, you cried. Why? Because your feelings led you to an emotional response. If that could happen when you know it's fake, think of how easily you could be deceived when it's being presented to you as reality. 
You don't trust those things. You enjoy those things when they come through the filter of following the Spirit of God. But you don't be led by those things. You're led by the Spirit. And the feelings that you have when you're being led by Him, you can trust and you can enjoy those. The ones that you have apart from Him probably weren't the ones you were created for to begin with. He says, you, you will go out with a shout of joy and be led forth with peace. And listen to this part. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where do we find that in the, in the New Testament? Oh, man, Romans chapter 8, verse 19. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Think about this. Just, just These scriptures, it, it all works together. He says, you'll be led forth. You'll, you'll, you will go out and be led forth. He says, you'll come this way. You'll, get, you'll give up what it is that you have in exchange for what I'm offering, and then you'll leave this way. And he says, all of creation will be cheering and clapping. Why? Because the Bible tells us that all of creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So when you come into his presence and you're changed by him and you go forth, the sons of God are revealed and all of creation shouts. It's in your Bible. You could be so changed, you don't even know it. You, maybe you can't even perceive it. The trees are cheering because you've been with him and they see the sons of God being revealed. The mountains are crying out. You may not hear them. They might not be in a frequency that we can hear, but they're rejoicing. When you come one way, you spend time with him and you leave changed. He says, when you go out, the mountains will shout and praise. Why? Because the whole earth is longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Every bit of creation is waiting for that time when you would become who God created you to become from the beginning before sin came in and, and messed everything up and Jesus came and made everything right. Now, once again, you have the ability to be with him and exchange everything that's not for all that he offers and become the sons and daughters of God that you were created to be. That's incredible. I'll just, I'll close with this. Remember how Jesus, when he starts his ministry, he walks into the temple they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he says, he opens it up and he reads from Isaiah. What's he letting them know? He's letting them know, I'm here to fulfill this prophecy. That which was promised in the book of Isaiah, I am now here to fulfill. For the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news, to set captives free, to give sight to the blind, to declare the favorable year of the Lord, right? He, said that he quotes, and he's letting them know, in today, in me reading this, in who I am standing here is the fulfillment of that. Watch what he does a little bit later. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come, and come to me and drink. What did God start out the promise of Isaiah with? Remember? I'll find it. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. What's Jesus saying? He's letting them know. You know that thing that Isaiah prophesied, that everybody who's thirsty come here and drink? Me standing here today is the fulfillment of that prophecy. If you're thirsty, come to me. And every bit of what was promised in Isaiah will be fulfilled in you coming to me because I have become the fulfillment of everything that was prophesied. It's amazing. Jesus is standing there. And he, they, these people would have known the scriptures. They would have known Isaiah. They would have had that prophecy memorized. And as soon as they heard him say, if anyone's thirsty, come and drink, they would have remembered what was promised in the book of Isaiah when he said, anyone who's thirsty, come and drink. And the next thing you know, they would have understood, oh my goodness, everything that was offered to us has now been made available to us. It wasn't a taunt. It wasn't God saying, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, you'll never figure me out. You'll never know me. It was actually God saying, you can actually know what I'm like, know my ways. 
and become like me. But you have to give up what was to become what is. That's why we have this beautiful standard of Jesus that we hold ourselves up to. It's not about, listen, it's not about perfection. But he is perfect. It's not about us saying, oh, you know, I never get it wrong. What does that even matter? Why does it even matter? Why are we even keeping score when he came to make all things new and he made everything right? I promise you, you make following Jesus and living to the standard that he called us to the goal of your life, and you'll live so much holier on accident than you ever could have on purpose. And your focus won't be the thing you don't want to do. It'll be the one that you want. Here's the great news. You can have him. You can have all of him. You can have as much of him as you want. Everyone who's thirsty, come to the waters. Yeah, God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for this amazing offer that you've made to us of eternal life and knowing you. One thing real quick. I can't help it. It says, those who sow to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but those who sow to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You know what that's offering you? What did Jesus say in John 17? This is eternal life, that they would know you, God, and know Jesus, whom you, the Christ whom you sent. What's he saying? As I sow into the Spirit, the reward for that is I know the Father. And I know Jesus. I walk in greater revelation of who they are. The more I give my time, the more I sow into him, the greater my revelation of who he is, the greater my knowing of him, my gnosko of him, my intimate communal relationship with him grows as I sow into the spirit rather than sowing into the flesh. So you're going to have choices all week of what you sow into. There's a dead piece of ground that looks kind of like you, but is no longer you. They would love for you to sow into it because apart from you giving it any bit of power, it has none. Apart from you giving it any bit of life, it has none. Apart from you giving it a voice, it has none. You get to choose which you'll give your voice to, which you'll give your time to, and what you'll sow into. One promises to bring forth corruption. The other, a greater revelation of the Father in Jesus. It's, it's that multiple choice test. A gives you this. B gives you that. Please choose B. Go take the test. Father, we're thankful that, that this test that you've given us of life, you've given us the answer for, and the answer is Jesus, the gospel. It's the answer. He is the answer for everything. So, Father, we, we just ask that you would, would take our eyes from anything that has tried to steal our attention, God, that's not you. Good things, bad things, horrible things, anything, God, that's not you, that's tried to steal our attention, would you take our eyes from it and help us to lock them on you, the author and the finisher, the river of living water. God, if we see anything in our lives, listen, if there's anything in your life that's causing wickedness or unrighteousness, there's a way of thinking or a way of living that's allowing that to be. But there's a greater way of thinking, a greater way of living that's available, and you can exchange one for the other any time you want. That's the beautiful thing about this. He says, listen, you can come to him right now because he's near. You can seek him right now because he can be found. So, Father, I thank you for that. I thank you that we can seek and find, that we can come and know, that we can taste and see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.